This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Hey, good afternoon to you. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing well. I feel like we're living in this fake spring of North Carolina. You know, it was all warm and I was feeling good. And then now we're going to fade off into the cold again. That's that's just North Carolina weather for you. If you don't <laughs> like what you're experiencing, just wait a few days and uh, it's, it's going to change. But no, this is that weird time of the year where, you know, you get that false sense of security. I'm yeah. Bust out my shorts and tank top. Nope. Uh, that's, that's not happening. No. Um, we should do an episode on allergies too, maybe. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that is a good one because that's that's the popular complaint right now. Right. Uh, but a, another complaint that's maybe not as popular, but uh, it is for those who are dealing with it, it, re- it has to do with long COVID. And we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about long COVID and sort of unearthing some of the mysteries regarding that. And we are pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Chuck Whiting. He's a nurse practitioner with WakeMed Primary Care. Chuck, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I feel like COVID, we've, we've said that word so many times on the show. It feels like it's never ending and it, it, it just won't go away. And we see new variants and it's just going and going and going. So Chuck, are you still seeing cases in your practice and have some of the symptoms lessened and in, in the variants that we're seeing now? Uh, yes, we're still seeing cases, uh, but the number of cases has gone down dramatically since the peak a couple months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we are expecting that we are in a lull now, um, and sort of holding our breath for the next surge, um, hoping there won't be one. But mm-hmm. but I think realistically we're gonna, we're going to see at least one more. Right. And are you still having people coming in for booster shots and keeping up on their vaccines? I think it's we're in that, you know, period now where boosters are coming every few months. Is that something that you're still seeing as well? Yes. And, you know, we're seeing the folks, uh, you know, getting their booster shot at six months. uh, And, you know, so there's a there were a, a lot of people who just over time are now still coming up on their six month mark. That's good. That's good to know. And I, I think there are some countries that are already working on a second booster shot. Right, right. I, I was watching the news this morning and saw a bit of that going on. So that's good to hear. You know, something that is scary about COVID, and it, it's kind of uncertain and a little bit unknown and it's causing anxiety in many, is the potential for it to last longer just than the infection itself of having COVID. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what is long COVID? You know, we hear this word in the news and, and floating around, and what is the real risk of getting long COVID? Well, long COVID is um, symptoms that do not go away at the end of the illness. And there's a couple different ways to look at it. Um, You can look at it and say, well, it's after four weeks if you're still having symptoms. You know, maybe that's long COVID. Um, Some professionals are saying, you know, you really need to give it three months um, to see um, if before, before we start calling it long COVID. 
and I'm, I'm with the group that thinks about three months out, uh, if you haven't recovered completely from your initial illness, that's probably the time to start calling it long COVID. Um, you know, the kind of things we're seeing with long COVID are um, the symptoms that you had with the COVID. Some people with difficulty breathing, some people feeling really tired, um, not having enough energy, um, not having the, the, the stamina that you had before you were sick, um, just lingering after the illness. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that new symptoms pop up after COVID that are being pointed to, hey, you you did have COVID, that could be a symptom of that in in long COVID. Do you see people coming up with new things like heart problems or or other other symptoms that are um, related but are part of the long COVID instead? Yes, definitely. Um, And that's all over the country we're seeing those things. Um, We see... Um, a higher risk for heart attack or stroke Mm. after the COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, The Veterans Administration did a study in 2021, and they found that uh, the risk for all types of heart disease uh, went up after COVID, so that there were 45 extra cases of heart disease diagnosed per 1,000 veterans Mm. uh, in the post-COVID veterans compared with the veterans who had never had COVID. And, and that's, a, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty concerning number. Wow, that is. Ha- happily, some of those are going to be transient events mm-hmm. where you have some inflammation in the heart, which is not uncommon with the, with the long COVID. And hopefully that is a, you know, a, a short-term thing. It'll happen for a while and the, and the body will recover and go on. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. But you- that's not the case in all of those things. You know, I'm, I'm going to put my uh, my dad's wife on blast here, but <laughs> uh, she had that happen to her and um, ended up at urgent care thinking she was having a heart attack. Um, and she was in a lot of pain and she went to a wake med urgent care and they actually put her in an ambulance and took her straight to wake med and, um, and did some testing on her and found that her heart was just very inflamed and they were pointing it to COVID. And, and she didn't know that she could have had COVID, but that's the only explanation they really had for it is this could be a long COVID kind of effect. And um, she ended up exactly. in the hospital for quite a few days and then on medication for a couple months following to try to get the inflammation down. But it was just so random. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you mentioned the three month, um, you know, time frame of thinking about when long COVID starts. Are you still contagious if you're still, you know, I I know people have like a little lingering cough. Is that still COVID contagious, or, or are you still okay to to you know walk about the cabin uh, after your quarantine period? You should not be contagious after about ten days um, from either your. Um, your positive tests or the first sign of symptoms. So after that point, you, you shouldn't be able to make anybody else sick. Um, and you're, you are, yes, free to move about the cabin at that point, um, even, even if you're still having some lingering symptoms. Chuck, I've seen information uh, bandied about, about the COVID vaccines and how it, uh, the correlation between, you know, less likely to die from COVID as well as uh, experiencing milder symptoms when you have been vaccinated. Does that 
also correlate to long COVID as well? Are we seeing that if you're vaccinated, you're less likely to suffer from long COVID symptoms or maybe they're not as harsh? Yes, they are. The chance of having long COVID after being vaccinated is about 50 percent of of having long COVID uh, if you had the illness itself. Um, but it's not a complete, so it's not a, a, a complete preventative. Um, in terms of how severe the symptoms are, I don't, I don't think we're sure exactly uh, if it's going to really affect how, how significant your long COVID is. That makes plenty of sense. We are speaking with Dr. Chuck Whiting. He is a nurse practitioner with WakeMed Primary Care, and we're talking all about COVID-19. We know it's uh, unfortunately it's still a problem while uh, things are getting better. It's still something that we need to be aware of and taking precautions with. And we're talking a little bit more specifically about long COVID, and we're going to continue our conversation with him right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care, right here on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, our guest on the line is Dr. Chuck Whiting. He is a nurse practitioner with WakeMed Primary Care, and we are talking all about COVID-19, in particular, long COVID. These are COVID symptoms that uh, last uh, uh, longer than the, the usual duration that we have associated with COVID-19. And, um, you know, uh, at least I've read some horror mm-hmm. stories about uh, the impact that long COVID can have, and it's it's scary stuff. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Do you and Chuck? Do you think that anyone can get long COVID, or if you have a pre-existing condition, do you think that makes people more susceptible to it? Um, I be- certainly believe that anyone can get long COVID. Um, in all the research we've done in the last couple of years, we haven't been able to identify what the exact risk factors are. It really does seem to be random. Uh, but if you have a pre-existing condition like uh, uh, COPD or emphysema or you've got some heart disease, then, you know, your risk for having that worsened by the COVID uh, is definitely uh, up there. Uh, you know, someone who has some lung issues who ends up with a COVID pneumonia, their lung issues are going to be worse when they come out the other side. And, and I would assume then logically, then you're more likely to have a long COVID kind of symptom. Mm-hmm. Same with heart disease, um, kidney disease. If you have kidney disease, you got to be worried for um, the, the COVID creating more kidney damage, kind of, kind of just kind of making that one mm-hmm. step worse. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's such, such an unknown thing, and all the research that's going on about it is so important. Chuck, what do you do if you think you have long COVID? And I know my boyfriend has had this lingering cough and it's just bothering him like crazy since he had COVID. It's just a tickle in his throat, but it's there forever, he feels like. What would you do if you if you think you're having long COVID symptoms or issues? 
Well, I would recommend following up with your primary care provider. Uh, that per, Your provider is going to be able to help you with a few things, like further testing, uh, maybe uh, some x-rays, maybe some medication, just to kind of help you get through uh, the symptoms. If they're just symptoms that are lingering and are going to resolve on their own in another four to six weeks, um, you know, maybe some medication for a short term is going to help. Um, but beyond that, um, if you're if you're really having some difficulties, uh, folks who had COVID pneumonia, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm. Uh, are going to have some maybe some trouble uh, with their exercise endurance. Even walking into a grocery store from the parking lot may be something that gets them out of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, your primary care provider can do something like help you get a handicap parking placard for six months. Mm-hmm. So while you're recovering, you're parking up close and not having to, to, you know, use all your energy just getting to the grocery store's front door. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have to be out of work for an extended period of time, your primary care provider uh, can fill out the FMLA paperwork to give you an accommodation at work so that you have some extra time um, that's protected. Um, a lot of folks will need physical therapy, um, you know, or or a further evaluation by a specialist. And primary care is, is your first best point for getting all that kind of help. That's a great, those are some great suggestions. I can imagine some of these symptoms that you're talking about could impact work as, as we slowly get back into the office and people are moving away from work from home. I can, I can definitely see where, um, you know, something like being out of breath um, or having a consistent cough or um, some of these things could really impact your work. And um, so you mentioned that the disabilities, is, is long COVID a disability then? Yes, since about uh, spring of 2021, uh, with this, the government has recognized long COVID symptoms as a disability, and there are protections under the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, for folks who have it. One of those things could be accommodations at work, as we talked about, um, people who just don't have the stamina uh, that they had anymore, maybe people who are still having some brain fog. Uh, you know, may need some help at work, longer time for assignments, uh, a closer parking space, working from home. All of these things are, are accommodations that you can ask for uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Wow. And the things you don't yeah. know. Um, are there, there any, I know there's a lot of research going on about it, and you've mentioned some of the things that are happening. Are there any real clear causes yet? And I know that there, we just don't know that much about COVID, but have they pointed to anything that is significant? For the long COVID, no, because people who have really mild cases of COVID mm-hmm. um, are, are possibly getting long COVID as well. So mm-hmm. someone who had the mildest case then ends up with brain fog afterwards where they they just have trouble concentrating at times or or are more tired afterwards um and and the the long COVID is is often as worse as the mild symptoms they had from the COVID to begin with mm-hmm. you know getting your vaccine definitely as we said before uh will reduce your risk for getting long COVID by about 50 percent um but we have 
next to nothing going into getting COVID where we can say, oh, yeah, you're going to be more likely to get long COVID than the person next to you. You know, Chuck just says, uh, I don't know, a normal layperson here in the world, <laughs> it seems like the information, uh, at least that we're getting from the media with regards to COVID-19 has really slowed down. I mean, there's lots of crazy events going on in the world and, you know, the new cycle is going to shift. So it, it seems like, you know, the, the information trickling down to the average person has kind of slowed down with regard to COVID-19. Are you, is that the same on the physician level? Like, are you still getting lots of new information and studies related to COVID-19 or has, has that slowed down as well? It's slowed down a little bit since the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was there was really a push to get as much information out as we could and get everybody up to speed on what was happening and trying to keep everybody, you know, updated with all the new stuff. Um, but yeah, we're still we're still getting new information all the time, um, but it's not as impactful, I would say, as as in the beginning when everyone was still kind of fresh with it. Perfect. All right. And Chuck, I just want to reset real quick here. So if someone is experiencing COVID symptoms, can you just briefly go over again, you know, when should we be concerned about long COVID? And again, what are the steps that we should do personally if we're experiencing that? So if you have, if you're basically healthy, you have no chronic conditions like asthma, COPD, diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease, something that you're taking medicine for every day, uh, then I would wait four weeks or so as long as the symptoms are mild and then go see your provider. Uh, a lot of times with an illness, there can be some lingering symptoms like a dry cough or a sore throat or a little fatigue um, that just takes your body time to recover from it. Uh, if on the other hand, you are have a chronic illness where you're taking medicine for it every day or your doctor's checking you every six months to make sure it's not getting worse like asthma or or uh, high blood pressure or heart disease um i would i would go see your doctor uh pretty much right away after you've recovered or or after you're not contagious from the COVID, uh and see if there's anything they're concerned about anything they want to keep a closer eye on that's great advice and keeping that dialogue open with your primary care physician is really important when you're dealing with something like that. We're speaking with Dr. Chuck Whiting. He is the he is a nurse practitioner with WakeMed Primary Care, and we're going to continue our conversation with him. We're going to shift over to UTIs. This is something that we've been wanting to talk about mm -hmm. on this show for a while. So, Chuck, we're really happy to have you, and we're, we're going to uh, take even more of your time here. <laughs> you don't mind. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be right back. You're listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5, AM 680, WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk 
traffic. Hey, if you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care and see all the resources that are available to you, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. It's a wonderful website. You can find links to all their social media as well. Keep up with all the cool things going on with Transitions Life Care. I am Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, our guest on the line. We're so happy to have Dr. Chuck Whiting with us for another segment. He's a nurse practitioner with Wake Med Primary Care. And, uh, you know, I don't think many people in the world celebrate talking about urinary tract infections, but uh, it's different here at Aging Matters. So we, we've been looking forward to talking about this for a long time, Mary. I, I am thrilled about this episode. We get so many questions about urinary tract infections, UTIs, um, and personally, my, my I, I'm going to talk about my grandfather. I know we talk about him a bit on the show, but uh, a few weeks ago, he started seeing ghosts and I, my dad called me and said, well, grandpa's seeing ghosts again. And I said, nope, that's a UTI. And he died laughing and thought I was kidding. Um, and I know because I'm in the industry that I'm in and working at Transitions, but that was what I went to first. But it, I have no reason to, I have no knowledge around why I went there first, but I know that it's a thing. And so I'm excited to talk to you, Chuck, and uh, to share more information with our listeners. Maybe we start off there. Where What are some key signs of UTIs in elderly adults? So you want to look for there's a several things, so it's a, it's a fairly lengthy list. Um, you want to look for a change in the quality of their urine. So is it changing in color? Is all of a sudden, is it smelling? Um, is it dark? Is it red or pink tinged? Uh, does the person have abdominal pain? Um, is there a sense of more urgency when they have to urinate, like I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta get there right now, or, or agitation associated with having to urinate. Um, if the person has some incontinence, so they have some trouble holding their urine in, is that incontinence getting worse? Um, is it more frequent? Is there more, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a more amount coming out when they have a little incontinence episode? Mm -hmm. um, is someone urinating more frequently? Um, and is there, are there basic behavior changes? Or are there mental status changes? Um, anything, any kind of weird change in either of those things um, should alert you to the possibility of a urinary tract infection. Hmm. That is a quite a long list. Um, why do you know confusion isn't something we see in um, in the younger population? Why do UTIs, urinary tract infections, cause confusion in in the elderly population? We. Scientifically, we don't actually have a good answer for that. Um, and, and when I was preparing for, for the show, I went back and looked at all the, the research I could. Um, and the best thing I found was a, a study from a couple of years ago that looked at all of the available research on you know why there's a mental status change when there's a urinary tract infection and what's behind it. And their answer was, there's not enough scientific evidence to prove that there really is a mental status change. And I don't think that that really calls into question yet whether or not a mental status change can be a sign of a urinary tract infection. I really kind of think it has to do more with the quality of the research that's been done. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that this thing that I've always accepted as 100% true um, we couldn't actually prove it scientifically yet. Hmm. Um, we have some ideas. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we have some hypotheses as to why. And, and I think the best one is um, when you have an infection, when your body's sick, that stress or strain on the body. Mm. Um, and it's going to affect the parts that are struggling the most, mm-hmm. um, the most fragile parts. And so if you have some cognitive issues to begin with, um, it's going to make those cognitive issues worse. Mm. Um, it's going it, you know, it's, it's to strain that because it's the weakest. Mm. That's a that's a really good point, and probably in the situation with my grandfather, you know, he was stressed about making it to the bathroom on time or, or whatever it may be, um, and that that stress probably feeds into many other symptoms and situations as well. You know, exactly. Why is there a risk for UTIs? More of a risk for UTIs in the elderly populations. We we see it at transitions and um, and hear about it out in the field. Why is there more of a risk for for this population? Well, I'm, I'm actually going to I'm going to answer a uh, say something completely different and then answer that question. <laughs> and that is when you get a UTI. What's happened is bacteria has moved from outside the body uh, up the urethra, which is the tube that connects uh, to the bladder to the outside of the body. So it's moved from the outside up the urethra, up into the bladder, and been able to um, attach to the wall of the bladder and create this infection. And so if you think about the things that are going to make it easier for the bacteria to move from outside to inside, those are the things that are going to increase your risk. So if you've got some weakness in the muscles of the bladder, uh, which is a common problem as we age, um, it's going to allow a little bit of moisture, maybe not incontinence, um, but certainly a little bit more moisture to be in that area. And the bacteria can use the moisture to move up into the bladder. Um, People who are elderly, again, are more likely to be a little incontinent, uh, more likely to leak a little urine um, when they laugh or cough. Mm. um, And that allows more moisture um, in that area, which again allows the bacteria up into the body. Um, People who are elderly may be urinating less often. They may be a little more dehydrated than the rest of the population. Um, That urinating less often leaves the urine in the bladder for a longer period of time. So any bacteria that gets into the bladder has a longer chance to stay in the bladder uh, and get itself attached to the wall and start an infection. Uh, People who are younger, who are urinating more often, when bacteria gets up in their bladder, uh, we're often just peeing it out before it has a chance to cause us any harm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's very common to have bacteria in the bladder at any age. Um, Folks who are elderly have a weakened immune system, so that's very common for them. And so as you start to get a little infection, you don't have as robust a response against it. Mm -hmm. So it has a better chance to take hold and and blossom and become a more significant illness. Hmm. Um, Being less active uh, is also an issue. Um, When you're less active, you're just sitting more. And sitting more again allows for more moisture in that area, uh, you know, around the around the urethra. So all of those things kind of work against the the seniors in uh, in increasing their risk for having a UTI. 
Wow. So when would someone need to seek medical attention and how do you go about treating a UTI in, in this population? So that is probably the most important question you're going to ask me today. <laughs> and that answer is right away. Mm. Absolutely right away. As soon as you think maybe there's a urinary tract infection going on here, you want to get that identified as soon as possible. Um, they are not particularly dangerous anymore. Um, you know, in, with modern health care, we can, we can treat urinary tract infections. We do it in primary care every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the longer you wait with a urinary tract infection, the more dangerous it becomes. Mm. Um, bacteria in the bladder is not a big deal. Um, but the bladder connects directly to the kidneys with a tube called the ureter. If the bacteria stays in the bladder long enough, it can migrate up out of the bladder through the ureter directly into the kidneys. Bladder infection, not particularly serious. A kidney infection, 10 times more serious mm. uh, because now uh, it's, a, it's a more severe illness, obviously, but it also has closer access to getting into the bloodstream. Oh, wow. Bacteria migrating from the kidneys into the bloodstream, now you have what's called sepsis. Um, once bacteria is in the bloodstream, it can go anywhere. It can go to any of the organs, um, and you can get extremely sick extremely quickly. Um, so, so right away, the sooner the better. Um, don't wait. And Chuck, are there any steps that we can take to prevent a UTI? So preventing a UTI, the, the big thing to do is, Think about the fact that you want to keep bacteria out of the, the urethra, basically away from that area uh, where, there's a, where the opening is into the body. So keeping that area clean, um, don't allow yourself to sit in moisture. Don't allow the elderly person you're caring for to sit in a moist environment. Um, make sure that after you use the bathroom, that you're cleaning very well. Um, always remember, and women are all told this, wipe front to back, front to back. Mm-hmm. Um, throw that piece of toilet paper away, get a fresh one, wipe front to back, never use it twice. Uh, because that is a way to, that you can end up moving bacteria directly around the urethra where it, where it enters the body. Yeah, well, that's helpful information. Those are steps that we can take uh, or our loved ones can also take as well to avoid a UTI because as we've learned in this segment, it's it's not something that's fun to deal with uh, for any party in right. this scenario. Really want to thank Dr. Chuck Whiting, nurse practitioner with WakeMed Primary Care for all your time today, Chuck, and for answering all of our questions. You, you did a wonderful job. And again, we, we appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was our pleasure, and we are taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. 
You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, our guest on the line. We are speaking with Rick Messimer. He is a community educator on Elder Law Matters, and we're going to be focusing now on government benefits and where to use them. This is a world that uh, can get very, very difficult to navigate, Mary. So I'm glad that we have Rick here to help us out <laughs> yeah. because uh, for those who've been through it, uh, this is this is no walk in the park. Yes, and I'm very excited about this segment, Rick. It's something that I personally, my family has personally gone through with setting up my grandfather on veteran some of the veteran programs we have, but I'll save that to later in this segment. Um, <laughs> maybe we could start with Medicaid, which is a question that a lot of people and maybe a lot of our listeners have. What does Medicaid help pay for with assisted living? Good, and I'm glad you asked the question that way, Mary, because I get that so often. Uh, there's this misunderstanding that if you're in an assisted living community and how you define uh, assisted living basically is a community that helps you with your activities of daily living and then most of the time there are some standalones but most of the time you'll have a memory care unit within an assisted living and so there's this assumption that i get into the assisted living community. And when I spend down my assets to a point where I can now apply for quote unquote Medicaid, I'll get it. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. Medicaid only pays for skilled care, not assisted living. Mm. In the state of North Carolina, we have a program called special assistance, which I like to define almost like it's a Medicaid waiver program. And what makes it different is that the family can't have, uh, the, the person who's applying can't have an income greater than $1,208.50 if they're in assisted living and $1,580.50 if they're in uh, memory care. Mm -hmm. So if you come to me and you say, I'm going into uh, memory care, I want to apply for what they call Medicaid, which is special assistance and their income gross is $2,000, they won't qualify. Mm -hmm. So it's really important. I spent a lot of time trying to explain the different uh, programs for the different levels of care. So the key for the listeners is assisted living does not take Medicaid. It takes another program called special assistance. And a little bit later, we'll probably go over a little bit about Medicaid, um, but a whole different program. Mm -hmm. So the key for all of the Medicaid-type programs, your assets can't be more than $2,000. Uh, if you're married, there are some spousal allowances that let the uh, spouse at home still keep a certain amount of assets. Uh, you can usually keep your home and keep a vehicle and still be able to qualify. The key and the beauty of these programs is once you qualify, you're on them for life. So mm. you basically live out your life on special assistance or on Medicaid. Um, and so it's a great program. 
That that's a lot to take into, though. I can imagine why somebody would be reaching out for help on some of these things. You know, do there's a lot of assisted livings in our area and across the nation. It's definitely a, a growing segment in, in senior living. Do all assisted livings take special assistance programs? Uh, they do not. Uh, basically, there are a number of sites that you can go on, and even if you were to just Google. Uh, assisted living slash special assistance, uh, certain groups will publish these lists and let you know which ones do or don't. Uh, many uh, properties will only do private pay or, let's say, long-term care insurance, which in essence is private pay. Uh, and so uh, in, within the triangle, the number of communities that are taking special assistance is in fact shrinking mm-hmm. and very often what i do is i encourage the families to extend out their geographic reach because there may be somebody who's very willing to take special assistance in burlington or rocky mount or on the other side of zebulon where they wouldn't if they're inside the belt line mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's it is getting harder to find communities that will take special assistance uh, if there are some and they're, you know, really nice looking properties, probably a waiting list right now. Mm-hmm. So the key is, um, how, do I qualify to get into into a uh, uh, assisted living community? Then the question is, how do I pay for it? We can just touch now. The, the, the prices are all over the place. They could be as low as maybe uh, three or $4,000. They could be as high as six. It is not uncommon where I hear numbers in the memory care to be eight, nine, ten thousand dollars per month. So it's it's a frightening amount. And then the question is, how do I now pay for it? So this is where these conversations on the government benefits come in on literally for me a daily basis. Mm-hmm. The the sticker shock uh, that I hear from families they just don't have enough assets to uh, supplement the income paying for care. Mm-hmm. It's a big number to, that has to be uh, tackled every month. Absolutely. And, you know, we you touched on SNF care um, briefly and skilled nursing facilities and skilled nursing is the big difference with assisted living and, and going that step up uh, and getting that extra care. And I know that this is a loaded question, but what does covering skilled facility care look like in coordination with government benefits? Good. When you're looking at skilled care, then the program is Medicaid. Just want to touch on something because I think it's really important. We can look at Medicaid, but please, for the people listening, do not get confused between Medicare and Medicaid. I hear so many times, well, my neighbor Mary was uh, at XYZ and she was in uh, taking rehab at a skilled nursing facility and Medicare paid all of her bills. Mm-hmm. So there's this assumption that if you're inside of a skilled nursing facility, that Medicare will pay for it, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Medicare is paying for the rehab. It will not pay for long-term uh, skilled nursing. So if you're diagnosed that you need skilled nursing for basically the rest of your life, you will be going for Medicaid. Mm. So just 
two M words, but don't get the two mixed up. Uh, it'll be devastating. So one goes through an application process. You need a doctor to say you need skilled care. You need the skilled care facility to agree. They'll just go out, do an assessment uh, on the potential uh, client of theirs. Uh, then the question is, can they apply for Medicaid? There are some restrictions. Uh, they need to have the spend down to $2,000 in what they call countable assets. You're still permitted to have a primary residence. You are still permitted to have a vehicle. Uh, some of those get a little bit more complicated, but that's the, the essence of it. Uh, what people are going to be concerned with is can Medicaid come after the passing of the individual and take their house or uh, do some things? And the answer technically is yes. That's called Medicaid recovery. And Medicaid will uh, send a bill to the estate of the deceased person and say, we've been paying Medicaid for X amount of years. We want some of our money back. And how that uh, kind of like street rumor came about that Medicaid takes your house. Well, if you only got $2,000 in cash, your only asset might be your home. So the executor needs to sell the home to pay the bill. Mm -hmm. And that's where that legend kind of came about. Medicaid doesn't want your house. They want their money. Gotcha. So when somebody comes to, to, to a, a, an estate planning, a preferably elder law attorney, then what's going to happen is we're going to look at ways that we might be able to protect assets mm -hmm. as well as get on the benefit program. Mm. So there are some very simple things. As an example, you can have a uh, irrevocable burial uh, policy. Uh, you can make investments into that vehicle. So if you've got a 15-year-old car, and let's say you don't have to go out and buy a new one, which is like when it's only five years old, that would be a legitimate legal spend down for that. I always encourage people, look at your patient, look at your family member. Do they need dental work, eye care, hearing aids, all things that for the most part aren't covered by Medicare how can we get those to better the patient's life and meet the spend down requirement at the same time? So there are things that are legal spend downs. You just have to know what they are. The key is never gift money. Don't give, don't give that car that you've got to your granddaughter that's considered a gift. And that's going to create problems in that Medicaid application. So unfortunately, the process is is complicated, and I encourage everyone who's thinking about it or, or is concerned about it in their future that they would see somebody. Uh, you know, the, probably the sooner the better. The more, the earlier we can talk to someone, more apt we're going to be able to find an avenue that they can go down to protect assets and get the benefit when they're in the nursing home ready to apply it limits the number of options that might be available so earlier the better yeah like many of the topics that we discuss on this program you know after the fact or in the middle of a crisis it's often too late and makes things a whole lot more challenging so getting ahead of it planning understanding what might be available to you is always our recommendation rick if folks want to learn more about you or get a hold of you what's the best way to do that uh, two ways. I'd be more than happy to accept phone calls, 
656-2959, or my email address is rick at carolinaestatecouncil.com, either one, uh, and everything that I would do, uh, absolutely no charge for uh, chatting with somebody, so that would be a, a totally free service, and I would love to uh, be able to chat with some of your uh, listeners. Wonderful. He is Rick Messimer. He is a community educator on Elder Law Matters. If you want to reach him by phone, that number again is 919-656-2959 or email rick at carolinaestatecouncil.com. That'll do it for us today. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.